Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Anthropologist Birgit Meyer's most recent book, Sensational Movies, explores the dynamic process of popular video filmmaking in Ghana as a new medium for the imagination that interweaves technological, economic, social, cultural, and religious aspects. Stepping into the void left by the defunct state film industry, video movies negotiate the imaginaries deployed by state cinema on the one hand and Pentecostal Christianity on the other. More specifically, Meyer shows the affinity between cinematic and Christian modes of looking and showcases the transgressive potential haunting figurations of the occult. In this in-depth account, more than two decades in the making, Meyer takes us into the nexus of imagination, imaginaries, and images in contemporary Ghana. I'm so pleased to welcome Birgit Meyer to NBIR today. Ah, thank you, Hilary, for this very nice uh, introduction and also for this interview. And in fact, Birgit is actually here with me in person, which I was saying to her is very exciting because normally our interviews on NBIR are done over Skype. But in this case, we have her here in Montreal in the studio. So this promises to be a very exciting interview. So as I noted in the introduction, the book began more than two decades ago. How did you come to the project in the beginning? Well, I was uh, in the early 1990s. I was still conducting research for my uh, PhD thesis that focused uh, on the rise of local interpretations of Christianity in Ghana. And I did that research in the village called Peki. But every now and then I came to Accra, the capital, uh, to change money, to get mail, uh, and so on. And all of a sudden I saw a huge billboard depicting a woman with some white foam coming out of her mouth and holding in her hand a snake with a human head. And it was advertised as a movie, Diabolo. Come and watch the latest uh, sensation by William Akufo, obviously uh, the filmmaker. This attracted me, in fact, uh, to, to go and watch the film. And when I watched the film in a kind of public viewing, uh, open-air setting, I was very surprised to see that the film addressed the theme of um, diabolic action, you get it already from the name Diabolo, that I was familiar with, but in another register, since I was doing research on Christianity and uh, sermons and so on, and in these sermons, uh, the devil was mobilized a lot. And so then I realized that somehow... Uh, next uh, to uh, Pentecostalism growing, uh, there was also a film industry that followed quite closely in a way in that same atmosphere. And that very much uh, kicked me off. I had to finish the dissertation first. It also came out as a book, Translating the Devil. But then when I had uh, a new research grant, I think that was in 1996, I came back to Ghana and then really went uh, for a close investigation of this uh, emergent video film industry and its relationship with Christianity. And I want to get back to that moment in the the mid-90s in the emerging industry, but maybe before we go any further, it might be helpful to clarify for those listeners less familiar with your work, how this study dovetails with the heuristic model that you've been developing over a number of years, the sensational form. What does that refer to and how does that help us understand the video films in this book? 
Oh, yeah, that is an uh, interesting question. And it's also nice that you pose it because while I worked on this video project for a long time, studying also the rise of Pentecostalism at the very same time, I also sought to develop a number of theoretical notions, the sensational form being the most important one, uh, as it were, to understand in a way the genesis of some sense of wow, or surprise with regard uh, to the uh, supernatural. I employ the notion of sensational form in the following way. For me, sensation refers to, indeed, the level of sense, making sense, as well as sensation in the sense of um, a perception of the world, but also developing certain feelings about it. Now, I found that uh, different religious traditions have Uh, various uh, sensational forms that they authorize as the way to, in a way, get access to the divine or the uh, supernatural for the people who are part of this religious uh, tradition. Pentecostalism knows a number of sensational forms that tune people's senses, make them develop particular feelings and also modes of making sense, such as uh, the speaking in tongue session, in services, and so on. So sensational forms are very much about the orchestration of modes of making sense, sensing uh, the world, and also having certain feelings and becoming sensible to the world in particular ways. This notion came out of my research on Pentecostal, Christianity, and I realized that it was uh, productive and illuminating to use the notion of sensational form also in relation to these uh, kinds of uh, emergent movies, in that they also played a role in, in a way, retuning, addressing, uh, shaping people's habitus uh, in a particular manner. Yeah, and I think that that idea of an authorizing force in these yeah. sensational yeah, forms yeah. is so important in yeah. this book, and yeah. it'll it'll come up again, of course, mm-hmm. in our discussion. Yeah. And it's kind of nice, too, because as you said, that initial poster that grabbed your attention, yes. it didn't it, it used the term, right? A sensation. Or, uh, yeah, right? this is in a way very interesting because I, I took a picture of the poster, but it was on a deer, and I forgot it. I think we often... Uh, forget a bit about our analog media certainly Diaz, which was something to do yeah. in the early 1990s. When I was um, looking for a frontispiece uh, for the book, I was I wanted to get uh, this picture. I knew I had taken it, but I had totally forgotten that it referred explicitly to the notion of sensation. And I had already agreed the book would be called Sensational Movies. I had developed the notion right. of sensational form. And then I realized, again, how grounded in a way also this conceptual notion was in my fieldwork experiences. Yeah, that's right. It brings you right back to that initial moment. The newest sensation. Exactly, exactly. And of course, I start the book with that. And I also relate it very much to, of course, sensation, not as primary and given or let's say part of our biological setup, but sensation being streamlined by a particular media that also orient people in a particular way and that underpin, in fact, modes of uh, sharing things that underpin the development of a common common sense uh, in the figurative uh, and in the literal sense uh, we could say. We've been speaking then a bit about the empirical frame we could say for your ethnographic work. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could speak to 
that a bit further, Sensational Movies takes us into a number of different sites around Accra where movies are being watched and also where they're being made. Mm. Uh, could you describe some of those places and clarify what kinds of research you did for the project and how you came to also focus your attention in mm. the particular sites yes. where you did? Yes, that is a nice uh, question, I think, and it is a huge question in a way. Perhaps, first of all, I should say that uh, in, during my research in the early 1990s in Ghana, I witnessed a transformation of the Ghanaian uh, public sphere from being very much controlled by the state, the state owning and having control over radio, television, and the press. So it was in the mid-1990s that Ghana returned to a democratic constitution, and this entailed the liberalization and deregulation of media at the same point as, in a way, the country opened up for neoliberal capitalism. It implied that, indeed, there was a potential for an emergent public culture that had that, that was accessible to the people made by the people, but very much under the sign of neoliberal capitalism and commercialization. Uh, ordinary uh, people who hitherto had not had access to media like uh, film, radio, television were able to, to access this uh, sphere. And uh, they did so by using and deploying, in fact, the medium of video that was brought to Ghana via... Ghanaian migrants who lived in Europe and in the U.S. and who brought this technology uh, uh, to Ghana. Now, in the mid-1990s, or already late 1980s, there was a kind of problem in the Ghanaian setting. Uh, the film industry was even still state-run and state-dominated to produce feature films. This was very expensive and there were no longer uh, means for this. And in a way, a video technology was used to stand in as a substitute for uh, celluloid. And the beginning of the video film industry uh, was predicated on uh, making substitutes for films. And the first uh, video movies were also screened in uh, the cinemas in which no celluloid films could be shown uh, any longer because they were not uh, available. It was at the point when I really started my study in the mid-1990s that these movies were just being uh, copied and made available for home use. But even in those days, movies were still shown in the cinemas and were also shown in small video parlors uh, in the suburbs. And only after some time then were sold uh, sold in video shops uh, and so on for public viewing uh, again. This implied that uh, I would, of course... uh, uh, try to watch the latest movies as they were screened in cinemas, as they then would move into uh, smaller, also in a way lower class uh, neighborhoods into very popular open air uh, venues until indeed people would also purchase uh, the videos and watch them at home. It implied uh, that my research had uh, many different locations. I was in a way following uh, the consumption, uh, the screening and consumption of the movies, But gradually, as I got uh, acquainted with the video filmmakers, with the actors and all these people, of course, I also was on set. And in the end, I managed in a way to witness the different phases, of course, the the production, the distribution, as well as consumption of this kind of movies, which led me crisscross through uh, uh, Accra day in, uh, uh, day out. So my 
research location in distinction to my earlier research was not a bounded village where things would happen, but there were different nodes, uh, in, in fact, where that were relevant for filmmaking and film screening. And I constantly circulated uh, between them, often together with the video filmmakers and, uh, and distributors. So I think this was implied in what you were saying, but just to clarify, these were video films that were being produced by Ghanaians um, Mm -hmm. with Ghanaian actors for the Ghanaian public. And I presume that the budgets were rather Mm. low most of the Mm -hmm. time for these kinds of films. Were they being distributed more widely or were they mainly really for that Ghanaian audience? They circulated mainly in Ghana and also in the Ghanaian diaspora, or more broadly, English-speaking diaspora. So in my hometown, uh, Amsterdam, I also could watch a lot of uh, movies and follow the circulation of movies, often uh, via piracy, uh, of course, uh, to to the uh, West. The filmmakers, of course, had the desire to also uh, come out big and really uh, attract very large audiences uh, to these movies, but this this was did not prove to be uh, as successful as the video filmmakers might have uh, hoped for. The films are very much tied to uh, local sens- sensibilities and, uh, and interests, and in fact they are very much up against uh, expectations which perhaps uh, European or Western audience might have with regard to an African uh, film. Actually, these local video movies were quite distinct from the known uh, genres, the known, known films, uh, African films, forms of African art cinema that circulate in the West. Mm-hmm. One of the important features that, of course, interested me as an anthropologist, being the strong emphasis on the occult, on the, on the devil, witchcraft, also the victoriousness uh, of Christianity over traditional religion, and so on. So these were themes that occupied uh, people in the local scene, but were very difficult, I think, to situate for audiences uh, outside. Throughout my uh, research, working with the filmmakers, I have also tried to uh, organize screenings uh, in Amsterdam, in certain places uh, in the Netherlands, but I found that I always had to do my best to explain to the audiences how these movies were situated and how would they differ from African art uh, films in order to create some interest uh, and sympathy. So I would say, you know, the filmmakers wanted to play it very, very big uh, uh, globally, but that did not uh, work like that. On the other hand, uh, Nigerian and uh, as well as Ghanaian movies, the two emerged uh, around the same time, although I think the Ghanaian uh, film industry started slightly uh, earlier. They managed really to create huge, huge audiences uh, on the African uh, continent, right? So there are so many channels now screening um, locally produced uh, movies. That's uh, unbelievable. And some of our listeners might be more familiar with Nollywood, with the exactly. Nigerian version exactly. of, exactly. of the exactly. film industry, perhaps, yes. than the Ghanaian one. But nevertheless, mm. I mean, as, as you're saying, there's there's a link there. There's too. a link, absolutely. Yeah. And Nollywood, uh, they, they were only called Nollywood after a certain point. Uh, yeah. Sure. They, they were, in, in the beginning years, they were called Nigerian movies. And audiences in Ghana were always also very attracted to Nigerian movies. Also because uh, Nigerian movies were less subject to uh, local censorship uh, than Ghanaian 
movies, so they were in a way more exuberant and more excessive and so on. Brian Larkin has written very, very interesting things and Jonathan Haynes about the Nigerian uh, movies. So what I also found during my research was quite a rivalry, in fact, between the Ghanaian and Nigerian movies and the Ghanaian filmmakers had to do their best to keep the audiences uh, tuned, uh, as it were. Well, this is a nice segue because you mentioned censorship in the Ghanaian context Mm. and this brings us back to what you were saying a bit earlier about the role of the state and actually a liberalization that was happening Mm. in the mid-1990s that you were witnessing Mm. uh, during your research. Maybe you could bring us back and tell us just a little bit about the context of the cinema industry, both in the pre-colonial, sorry, I should say the colonial Mm -hmm. period, yeah, um, the pre-independence period, Mm -hmm. but also then what that shift looked like Mm -hmm. in the 90s. Mm -hmm. What kind of access did people have to cinema before that? Mm -hmm. What kinds of visual media were being created for them? Yeah. Well, even before uh, the uh, British colonial administration started to adopt cinema as a kind of propaganda mode, it was very much uh, at the time of the Second uh, World War, right, to communicate also uh, knowledge about these uh, global events. So before that time, there were already quite a number of films in uh, circulation uh, and in cinemas run uh, often by Indians, but also by some uh, Ghanaians, and these were movies uh, featuring Chaplin, uh, for example. So th- those movies were very, very popular, and also uh, early silent films. Even after um, it was possible to make sound films, often the equipment was not there. So there was already from this early moment a tradition of uh, not having uh, sound, but having to make the sound, as it were, uh, by way of commenting on the movies. There were commentators on the movies and the audiences also engaged uh, with what they saw on screen in a very active and uh, exuberant and loud uh, um, manner. Uh, with, with independence in 1957, so the first president uh, of Ghana, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, was very fond of film and saw it as a potential medium to bring about uh, the integration of the nation and national unity. So he, in a way, transformed the colonial film unit in the Ghana Films and Industry Corporation, which was very, very important uh, 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 to him and in which invest, he invested in much uh, until the rise of television uh, in the mid-1960s, just shortly before uh, he was, these um, two, uh, he had to uh, leave uh, presidency via um, a coup. And for Nkrumah, uh, film was a very important uh, medium, uh, indeed not only for the integration of the nation, but also for invoking a certain a vision of an African uh, personality and since these days in fact cinema was uh, one of the ways of citizenship uh, education right so education being a very very um, important uh, uh, notion here what I noted is well the, the state film industry went on but they always had quite little funds to do feature films there were quite a number of documentary films made but it, it was not a really thriving uh, film industry which eventually um, in the mid-1990s was even privatized and uh, sold to a Malaysian uh, television company so and at that time since the 
mid to late 1980s, local filmmakers already were standing in the void. People wanted to watch films, but there was nothing around. And so they developed a substitute for cinema with the me- uh, medium of uh, uh, video. And what was interesting that in many ways they used this new medium of video in, we could say, old ways that were grafted upon the use of uh, a cinema. And many uh, understandings and of and expectations with regard to the medium of film were also retained, especially the educative and also moralizing um, uh, under, undertones. This was also something audiences very much um, expected. But where and how these locally produced video films differed from the format of, of film as education maintained by the state was uh, with regard to the depiction um, of, of the occult and so on. And there was a real um, digression between uh, indeed the idea of Nkrumah those days to uh, present uh, very positive images of African personality and indigenous culture and the way in which uh, the video film movies mobilized um, well, the local gods and, and spirits uh, also in, in terms of dangerous uh, forces that were diabolized very much in line with uh, the Christian take on uh, local religion and culture. In that initial moment that you described, seeing that poster for Diablo, we both get this notion of the diabolization, mm. the occult that you've been talking about, mm. but also the fact that you were seeing this poster when you come into Accra, when you come into the urban space. Mm. And one of my very favorite chapters in the book, maybe because I didn't, I didn't know it would be there, was the chapter where you talked about this issue of urban space, um, how Accra is presented in these video films, mm. and indeed how Africa is therefore represented in these films too. Could you tell us a bit more about that entanglement of the urban landscape, the neoliberal capitalism and mm. the kind of fantasy that's depicted mm. in these films? Mm. Well, what, what struck me uh, immediately was a very uh, selective and partial representation of uh, Accra. So there was a very strong preference to uh, show the latest hotel, the nicest restaurant, to show high buildings, to also very much depict in a way what in, in local understandings was seen as development. This was also one of the attraction points uh, to these movies for people in the diaspora who said, okay, uh, Ghana is also developing. You see, we have this and this and this uh, in Accra. I often ask filmmakers why they would not uh, uh, perhaps go more for the picturesque or the messy, the markets and so on. And they said, no, why is it that you as a European always want to, to, to look at a, a messy in uh, Africa which you may find uh, 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 colorful? We want to show uh, uh, the extent to which uh, Africa resembles uh, the modern world. We also have development and so on. What I found interesting is that uh, uh, in a great deal of the movies there is a uh, depiction of, of the city that is partial, that really focuses on these modern aspects. And I saw it as laying bare, in fact, an urban imaginary of a city yet to come that resonated very much uh, with people and their expectations. And that also tied into images of earlier nationhood, where we could also find uh, similar emblems uh, uh, of, in a way, the, 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 the city as a um, site of, of, of development and modernity that was also taken up uh, 
in these uh, in these movies. So I would say that film, yeah, in many ways also expressed and helped realize an urban imaginary of a kind of uh, yeah, modern city that was not quite there. Uh, uh, if one in, on the level of everyday life, and that was at the same time very much uh, aspired to. Yeah, there's something really interesting about temporality in this book because, as you said, there is both the depiction of the city yet to come, mm. and yet the the past. It, in the context of these movies, the past as in these questions about the occult and how the mm. occult still functions. Mm. I mean, this is very much front and center. And yeah. all of this in, in sensational movies, all of this is also filtered through, of course, Pentecostal Christianity, mm-hmm. which is one of the frameworks mm-hmm. for which these mm-hmm. movies are, are being developed. So for those listeners who don't know that much about Pentecostal Christianity, or in particular, perhaps in Ghana, it might also be helpful to clarify some of the background about its role and its spread, mm-hmm. especially in the South, where you conduct your mm-hmm. field work. Mm-hmm. What does Pentecostalism look like in Southern Ghana? Uh, are we talking about a large number of people who are Pentecostal? Mm-hmm. Uh, Pentecostalite is how you've been yeah. discussing this. Tell us more about it. Yeah, well, uh, what what struck me in a way from from the outside in in my work, even in a village setting in southern Ghana, was a kind of struggle going on even within a Presbyterian church uh, about uh, the importance attributed uh, to the Holy Spirit and the capacity of the Holy Spirit indeed uh, to get into people and to make a radical change um, in their lives. And during my uh, research in that village in Peking, the church even broke uh, into two parts. So the, the a group emphasizing the importance uh, of the Holy Spirit, of speaking in tongues uh, uh, and all that, and of deliverance of, of demons uh, became very, very um, uh, popular. And once I shifted my research to Accra, I also realized that in the city even more, that this was a, a very, very prominent movement. On the one hand, there were lots of uh, newly founded uh, charismatic churches founded by uh, Ghanaian uh, leaders like uh, Christian Action Faith uh, um, ministries and and others, but at the same time, the strong emphasis on the power of the Holy Spirit to make a change uh, in one's personal life also uh, caught on very much uh, well within the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, and in the uh, Presbyterian churches. So in many ways, uh, I, I found that uh, grassroots understandings of Christianity and expectations of what uh, Christianity would have uh, to offer were moving into uh, the direction of Pentecostalism, which is, I think, a very interesting uh, religiosity in that uh, it is uh, a re- religiosity that makes people very mobile, as it were, the emphasis being very much of the Holy Spirit that people feel touched by and by which they feel um, to be filled. So that is a very, very important uh, aspect. It's a, it's a, it's a re- religiosity through which people also feel mobilized and uh, able to be on the move, to be up, out from the village to um, the big city and from the big city to Europe and other parts of the world. It is also... Uh, 
religiosity that is very much tied uh, to to modernity it may also be seen by people as indeed a harbinger of becoming finally becoming modern and uh, doing well in life so there's a strong emphasis uh, on healing and also on um, on wealth the achievement of of wealth uh, partly uh, also as formulated in the prosperity gospel, but not uh, necessarily. And at the flip side of this, there is a very strong emphasis on um, diabolization. One often hears uh, the cry, make a complete break with the past. And by this, it is meant that, in fact, indigenous religious uh, tradition, though, of course, being very present and uh, still alive, uh, in the present uh, is uh, temporalized as something backward, as something belonging to the past, past from which people um, in a way seek to uh, distance uh, distance themselves. So it is a very, I would say, it's interesting to look at Pentecostalism from um, a perspective of time and temporalization. It is a religiosity that very much invests uh, into a particular a future, a future of, of progress, uh, indeed, that were also a fulfillment, we think, of uh, Ferguson's book, uh, of expect- expectations of modernity. So the fulfillment of uh, hitherto frustrated uh, expectations is in a way promised to come with Pentecostalism. And at the, the other, the dark side of it, there is this very strong um, concern with the forces that hamper these um, uh, developments, so the forces powers of darkness, the occult, uh, um, and so on. And in my own research, I have always tried to look at these two dimensions together, and it is well a dualistic uh, take, which one also finds very much in the uh, video. It really comes out in the book that there is this kind of synoptic dualism, mm-hmm. we could say, in the video films, mm-hmm. where both the urban landscape as well as Pentecostalism mm-hmm. are part of creating as you say, a city yet to come, but we could also talk about an Africa yet to come, and and both aspects are are functioning within these video films that you describe. Um, And and I should say that we've been using the terms like religion and religiosity, Mm -hmm. and this is all very good because, of course, we are talking about new books in religion, Mm -hmm. Um, so we're using the category, but it is certainly in your work in general and and in this book too, in Sensational Movies, uh, religion is a very expansive kind of term. I mean, it's a very expansive sort of category. It happens everywhere as you as you point mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. Um, in mm-hmm. this book so listeners should also be aware of the fact that as we're talking here we're also talking about something uh, rather expansive the ways that these video mm-hmm. movies express mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. Yes, these yes. phenomena that you're talking about yes. but also uh, you know, travel in other kinds of ways into yeah. the public sphere. Yeah. You know, in, in my previous research, of course, I have uh, spent uh, time to, to look at processes of conversion and all that. But what attracted me to study the film industry was uh, that it allowed me to understand in the implications of the spread of the uh, event- evangelizing uh, gospel throughout a public sphere that was no longer contained, as it were, um, by the state in ways in which it had been contained and controlled uh, before. And what I found interesting was indeed the spread of Pentecostal imagery, Pentecostal modes of of sensing uh, 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 the world, Pentecostal narratives and moralities, also via uh, this video film industry, which of course was never 
uh, run by Pentecostal churches, but in a way enhance uh, also the popularity of this, in a way, mode of being in the world via the movies. In so doing, of course, something paradoxical also uh, happens. For if indeed religion becomes unbounded as a category, if it is everywhere and nowhere, if it is so easily reproduced and copied and brought into uh, the sphere of entertainment, it indeed may become very much of a surface uh, uh, phenomenon that may run counter to aspirations uh, of uh, piety and sincerity. And that is also something that has very much interested me. So when I talk about Pentecostalite culture or the spread of Pentecostalism, I don't talk about the spread of a deeply sincere, pious attitude, but I talk about uh, the, the spread, the encroachment, one could also perhaps say, on the public sphere of a particular mood and attitude. Mm. And the films, uh, I think, very much tie into and it's a mood and an attitude that's informed by, as you note in the book, Christian modes of viewing. Mm -hmm. So we can maybe get into, in some ways, the heart of your research, which is the ways that issues related to vision, as well as the visible and the invisible, mm -hmm. and how those kinds of things inform the video films that mm -hmm. you've studied. Mm -hmm. Well, um, what what is important uh, to realize that... Uh, of course, the, the southern Ghana is, is multi multi ethnic, right? But in in the, the various uh, local languages, there is a difference made between uh, what is called the physical the physical world and the spiritual world, and there is a very strong awareness uh, on the part of people that next to the physical world, which is uh, accessible to the eye and to the other senses, there is another sphere that impinges on that world, but that is not easily uh, uh, graspable. So what people often say is that we are in demand of some extra vision, vision being very much uh, emphasized, and a lot of preaching, uh, for example, as well as, uh, in fact, uh, also uh, the services offered by traditional priests goes into making visible what is around, but what, what cannot easily um, be seen. So pastors, but also local indigenous priests talking about things they can see thanks to their link with uh, spiritual powers and that they can that they can make visible, often then via words, uh, of course. And the interesting thing is that the video movies, uh, a, a great, not, not all, but a, a very great strand in these movies tied into this modus of making visible uh, the unseen, as it were, and then set out to indeed picture, uh, especially the occult, but also the operation of God and all the effects uh, in these movies. And this is, uh, I found, one of the major attraction points uh, of these movies, that they tie into Christian modes of looking and in a way claim to make visible something that is uh, unseen. What struck me very much when talking to audiences about these movies is that they would say, okay, these films are made, of course, by producers, but they are not just fictions. They teach us something about the unseen, which, are not, which is not so easy uh, to see and which resonates uh, with what we hear in uh, Pentecostal sermons, which resonates also with dreams and so on. And it is in this sense that the movies indeed audiovisualize a particular imaginary that is often um, evoked in, in words. But they, of course, films have at their disposal the moving 
image. And so this, uh, yeah, this this is something uh, what what happens, which is also why I talk about film as revelation. It is also striking that uh, a great deal of movies, uh, either in the beginning or the end, has a, a quote uh, from the Bible or says, thank you, Jesus, thank you, God, uh, and so on. So also tying, in a way, the movie into a kind of a, the genre of a testimony, mm-hmm. uh, we could say. It's so important for a reworking of notions of fetish, which is something that you've been working on for mm-hmm. many, many years, but to think about the ways that in practice, humans and anyway, Ghanaians mm-hmm. can both recognize something as produced by human beings and yet also be revelation and yeah. also be mm-hmm. something that is directed by, in some sense, the actions of the spirit in the world. Exactly, exactly. And this need not at all be uh, uh, a contradiction, right? So I think it may well be it may be a kind of legacy of a Protestant take uh, on God as so completely other that um, he or she resists uh, any representation. But I think uh, that um, in what I encountered in, in the Ghanaian context was indeed also some trust in the capacity of, of the human hands and media to indeed develop a, the possibility to, to mediate and render present mm-hmm. that what is uh, unseen. And so this is always made and made up, and yet it can be vested uh, uh, with some uh, um, truth. And I've, I found this a very, very important uh, realization, which, of course, uh, I think maybe of larger uh, importance also in our approach uh, of religion as a practice of mediation that necessarily requires tangible forms in order to, in a way, produce uh, transcendence. So my research uh, in this field also alerted me to the limitations of a dualistic distance between uh, the divine or transcendence and then uh, the, the the immanent. Uh, I also thanks to these um, experiences in this Ghanaian world, uh, I got very much alerted uh, to the ways in which uh, religion may be seen as a, a system that mediates something that is not 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 there in a direct uh, manner, as it were. Could you give us an example from one of the films that you studied? that would give our listeners more of a sense of precisely what happens on the screen when something invisible mm. gets tangibilized or gets uh, mm. filtered through this media. Yeah, well, of course, what, what was very important from the outset were uh, what one could call special effects. Uh, and of course, uh, people very much specialize in, in developing uh, special effects with the rise of... Um, um, Adobe Premiere, so, so uh, digital technologies, it was also more easy to um, uh, produce uh, special effects. Mm-hmm. Now there were, of course, lots of anxieties and talks uh, um, about witchcraft, and there are lots of narratives about, uh, in a way, the shapes which witches uh, may take, uh, the owl or vulture, and so on. So in the early movies already, there were attempts to show how people would transform themselves mm-hmm. from uh, um, yeah, being the person uh, lying down and then becoming, in a way, uh, a, a witch by, by showing uh, a particular animal shape coming out of, uh, 
out of the person and such kind of scenes are very spectacular and again people know this is made uh, for the film but it resonates very much with local ideas uh, um, about uh, witchcraft for example there are also plenty of depictions uh, about the devil which often strikes me as quite medieval uh, devil. I was very interested uh, on the whole in the representation of demons and noted uh, that uh, filmmakers might take as an example, of course, European horror movies or even look uh, at encyclopedias of, uh, of witchcraft uh, and so on in order to get the iconographies uh, right. But so there was a lot of uh, investment in, uh, in special, um, special effects through which indeed these unseen demons about which people talked uh, a lot were being uh, uh, depicted and one used uh, materials uh, from uh, horror films, uh, films about uh, ghosts and so on uh, and similar techniques uh, very much. I was thinking specifically about your discussion about what you call the techno-religious, mm. uh, which I think is a helpful one, especially mm. for those of our listeners who are at the intersection of media studies and mm. religious studies, mm. perhaps. Mm. Could you talk a little bit more about that intersection and this notion of the techno-religious? Mm. That ties, of course, into what we just said about uh, mm-hmm. mediation, so the importance of, of of media to produce a sense of something that is not uh, present uh, as as such, uh, we could say. And uh, the video movies uh, very much alerted me to the importance of uh, particular technologies, so uh, the special effect uh, uh, technologies, as it were, to produce uh, particular uh, visions uh, into this realm of the uh, unseen. So when I talk about the techno-religious, I talk about, indeed, the, the, the use of particular technologies, of depiction, of making visible for religious uh, Purposes. It is impossible to uh, completely disentangle uh, these uh, uh, domains, as it were. I very much agree with the work of uh, Hente Fries, uh, for example, whose work I'm also quoting, or the work of uh, Jeremy Stoloff, too, who has been pointing to the importance of, of the, the use of uh, uh, technologies, in a way, in the depiction of the uh, uh, spiritual. It would make little sense to claim that uh, technologies and uh, the realm of spirits um, or the divine are independent uh, domains. We see, in fact, uh, so many examples in which uh, these two are brought uh, uh, together, and I try to uh, circumscribe this uh, with this notion of a techno-religious uh, realism that, wonder- that creates uh, yeah, certain images of an unseen that are vested uh, with with truth, uh, as it were. And one of the really important points here is that Sensational Movies does such a great job at really getting us beyond an earlier discussion that was all about how religion is depicted in media, mm-hmm. we could say, and rather yeah. views religion as media. Exactly. And as you've been talking about this, a very dense interweaving of the actual technological practices at play, the affordances that they have, and also the spiritual realm in which in which people live. Exactly. I think you say that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's what I try to convey. How do filmmakers engage their audiences? You were talking before about uh, those early sites 
silent films mm-hmm. and people were talking back to the film and engaging them. Mm-hmm. And you do such a nice job in this book also of giving us a sense of what watching practices, especially in the home, once people are able to get these videos for themselves, mm-hmm. what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, how does a Ghanaian audience watch these movies? What was it like for you as you were conducting mm-hmm. fieldwork mm-hmm. with audience yeah. members? Well, I was very much alerted uh, to the fact that uh, viewing is a social affair. Of course, with uh, video technology uh, becoming, with people having video players at home, they could also watch uh, alone. But the big fun during the period of my research, at least, was in in watching films uh, uh, together. So what I noted, I, I said with audiences so much, in my own home, visiting people, and then in the small video parlors, and as long as it lasted, also in the bigger cinemas. Most of the cinemas have now become shopping malls or churches, right? But there are still public viewing um, sessions. And what always intrigued me was uh, the strong audience uh, engagement, and they, they talk very much about what they would see on screen, raising certain cracking jokes, of course. But during talking. the movie. Yes, during the movie. Yeah. So it was always uh, somewhat uh, loud, uh, uh, as it were. And I realized also the, the sound quality is not uh, perfect. Uh, now it's, it's much better than in the beginning. But I realized that exactly the, the imperfection of sound also invited a stronger audience engagement with the images on screen. So I realized that the, let's say, real performance, the real film always demanded uh, the oral engagement of the audiences mm-hmm. uh, to make it into a kind of full and rewarding um, experience. Uh, I, so it was very performative, uh, uh, I, I would say, and sensational indeed, uh, in many, many ways, which is a different uh, way of viewing than I had been used to so far. In the beginning of my research, I uh, also expected that one would perhaps watch a movie and then discuss it <laughs> a bit, but I quickly realized that in, in a way the movie is discussed in, in uh, response to what people see on the screen, so I made lot, took lots of notes, uh, also recorded uh, uh, screenings and became much more alert then later to the ways in which films would be referred to more casually in people's lives. I realized that uh, people were looking to get something out of uh, movies. So what they were critical about movies. Mm-hmm. If a movie would not help them to get something out of it, if it would not show something important, uh, something invisible that they were interested in, or if uh, a movie would not not uh, be able to give some moral uh, guidelines, they would not uh, like it. So there was a certain preference. And video filmmakers, um, since you asked about this, were very much aware that they made movies that were not so much appreciated by the uh, people who who were still standing, in a way, for the former state film um, establishment. So the industry depended very much on the appraisal of uh, of the audiences. So they very much sat with the audience and studied what they were, how they were responding, and so on. And also, in a way, made the films in such a way that they would be successful interactive uh, uh, pieces that would trigger um, responses. So that makes it this phenomenon very, very interesting for me as an anthropologist, of course. Uh, we use this the study of this medium also as a way to learn about uh, a world of lived experience, uh, to learn about a popular imagination. 
filmmakers themselves did their best to stay quite close to what was on Vogue, what was uh, popular. Thinking about these things as a co-creative process, even in the act of mm. watching, mm. certainly reminds us that people don't watch films in quite the same way no. in all places in the mm. world. Exactly. Something that you mentioned earlier that I think is is probably important in this context is also the dangerous, potentially dangerous mm. quality of a film that is recreating the occult, even if it's recreating mm. it mm. in order to ultimately... Uh, send a, mm. a certain kind of moral message. Mm. Uh, in what ways was that kind of danger mm. uh, dealt mm. with, mm. both by audiences and also because you went behind the scenes in the production mm. of these films mm. by the actors and filmmakers themselves? Yeah, well, that that is a very important uh, question, and I also identified a kind of uh, paradox one one could say uh, in this uh, in this type of uh, movies that, of course. Uh, in this claim to, to, to show what happens in the unseen, to in a way depict, to audiovisualize the powers of darkness. They, they invested a lot in showing how these uh, powers operate, and this was one of the, uh, the big uh, attraction points. So one mm-hmm. finds a very, very strong investment, as it were, in the whole domain of the... Um, the occult that could only be contained by indeed presenting some kind of uh, uh, framework. So, yes, we show you all these uh, occult forces, but the film still had, on on a meta level, um, have as a message that this was uh, a bad thing to go into. But, of course, uh, audiences were very much uh, fascinated by this. And I talked to quite a number of pastors, too, and... uh, serious, uh, staunch Christians, and some of them also voiced uh, their concerns by saying, okay, yeah, the films they have, indeed, they they, they follow a Christian um, take on the world, but they very much emphasize the occult without necessarily always creating the closure that would be needed. So people who watch these movies or they don't watch them from beginning to end, they may end up, uh, uh, well, having all kinds of images of the occult enter their uh, imagination and these images may run uh, wild without indeed uh, some closure being um, achieved. I also noted that uh, uh, certainly younger um, Younger people. I, I followed a group of uh, young, young, young teenagers, uh, and we went to the cinema in the early phase of my research. And I noted that they very actively uh, embraced prayer in order to, um, yeah, in a way, protect themselves against potential uh, evil that would come by watching um, uh, particular images. So there was definitely an idea that the imaginaries depicted on screen might easily flip and uh, enter uh, people's uh, mind and perhaps pollute or um, or spoil them. And likewise, since you asked about uh, the set, uh, I also noted uh, that, well, on set, uh, every shooting started and ended with prayer. But there were also, uh, of course, scenes, uh, scenes to be sh- uh, shot that would involve the depiction of witches or the occult uh, and so on. I interviewed quite a number of uh, actors about how they felt about this, and I heard from many that they uh, 
well, went to their pastor to do some prayers as to protect themselves against the danger of mimesis. Of course, they said, well, we have to we make a film about the occult, so someone has to play the devil or a demon or a priest. But there was still a sense that it might be tricky to, in fact, mimetically um, take up uh, uh, this role. It might be more than a role. It might somehow, by being, by becoming the image, of course, on, on screen, somehow that what is depicted might enter uh, into uh, oneself. So there was quite some um, uh, concern about that. I, I have one chapter, I think, chapter chapter six, in which I write about uh, the danger of, uh, of animation, which comes with, indeed, uh, the, the bringing to life of, uh, of the occult and also of traditional rituals uh, and all that. It's a wonderful parallel with how we were talking earlier about uh, both Pentecostalism but also these movies spilling out into mm. a public sphere and in this yeah. sense of being unable to contain potentially yeah. the occult once you yeah. put out into circulation these videos um, is, is a fascinating yeah. parallel with the larger one in terms of the public discourse, the public sphere, and the way that these Christian modes of viewing and thinking mm. also are uncontained, spill out into it. The spirits once called upon, doesn't think even of, of good, also, well, it's very difficult to get rid of them. That's right. How do you put the genie back in the bottle? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Once certain figments uh, are, are produced, they, they are very difficult to be contained. They originate from the human imagination, but they are vested with a life uh, of their own. And uh, even if people are very much aware that it is humans who created them, still the images are there and have a particular uh, force, which yeah. also makes that they have to be handled in particular ways. So in this sense, I, I could say that uh, doing this research on these movies also alerted me to the complexities of human object entanglements, which of course are by no way limited to this uh, field. So what I definitely do not want uh, to do is in a way to, to, to offer an image of an exoticized uh, uh, Africa. I think that many of the mechanisms I, I found in, in this functioning of the video film industry with regard to the representation of the unseen uh, also would apply uh, uh, to, um, in, the, in the way, the world at large. Right. And I think another theme that runs mainly in one of your chapters, actually, but runs to some degree throughout the book that resonates much more broadly than Ghana or Africa is this question about heritage making in the context mm. of the state apparatus. And this is uh, something that's of particular interest to me because it dovetails with some of the things I've been mm. thinking mm. about in terms of the Canadian, the Quebec context. Mm. As you point out in the book, the view of indigenous religions and the way that they're depicted in other kinds of films or art mm. that are related to heritage mm. making um, is very different than how these Pentecostal or Christian modes of mm. viewing mm. understand the occult yeah. and yeah. indigenous yeah. religions. Yeah. Could you speak to that briefly? Yeah, I would say in, in the beginning of the film industry, there was a very uh, strong uh, cleavage in a way. So there was on the part of the state also um, an idea of cherishing heritage on the uh, this idea of African personality, Sankofaism, as it is also called, Sankofa being a symbol of the bird looking back, meaning go back and uh, take it. So a positive stance to a tradition that needs to be picked up and carried uh, to, to the future. 
the post-Pentecostal inclination to very much see that heritage as the demonic, something to make a complete break from, right? And for a great deal, certainly of the early films, they all went into um, this very much, so diabolizing, in fact, what was cherished as heritage in other um, in other registers. But I also noted uh, during my research that uh, at some point an interest emerged in a new uh, genre of movies, the epic films, which also found, in a way, the village to be an interesting scene. The, the village having been very much diabolized as an abode of the occult in earlier uh, films. And in the uh, epic, what was interesting is that the epic was usually located in pre-colonial, pre-Christian times, so in an ancient uh, uh, past, when also the people depicted they do, did not yet have to make a choice between being Christian um, uh, or not. And I, I noted that, uh, yes, this was an emergent genre that would, in a way, uh, situate uh, itself in a more positive relation to um, to Africa and, uh, and Africanness, and in certain ways um, to heritage. But what was interesting is that uh, the imagination of tradition was extremely fictitious. So I, so I talked to some uh, set designers who said, yeah, we, we are inventing unexisting traditions, ever more, ever new. And it was a very aestheticized uh, um, depiction of, uh, of tradition. This genre never became very, very smashing and extremely popular, but I saw it as an interesting opening that also resonated with a kind of shift. I also would like to pursue that in uh, future research, uh, a shift uh, in, in stance uh, towards heritage, towards Africanness that tries to embrace certain elements uh, in a way via the registers of the symbolic or the aesthetic, not as uh, in terms of a real, uh, with uh, certain spirits behind that have a real presence, but rather as a mode of, uh, or a style perhaps, of, of uh, something that signifies uh, Africans. And so these openings uh, I also found, but one would have to see how this uh, would develop further. You have this great section of pages in, in the book where you talk about speaking with a Nigerian. I believe he's Nigerian-born, mm. but he's Ghana now. Yeah, exactly. but, uh, I think he's now back in Nigeria. Okay. A set designer who's saying, uh, hey, look, you know, the altars weren't uh, all that interesting looking. Mm. So when I produce heritage, mm. then I'm I'm creating something even more spectacular. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Which I just yeah, thought was yeah, such yeah. a wonderful conversation yeah. that you were having with him. Yeah. Yeah, that, that was uh, also a, a Ghanaian film, filmmaker, which was, uh, I talked about this a lot. Michael Akwati Kani, one of the filmmakers to whom I dedicated uh, uh, the book. There was a big debate uh, how to represent African tradition. And on one level, yeah, well, there, there were people who said, oh, these movies, they always represent African tradition in a bad way. But there were also uh, people who were so much into, in a way, uh, indigenous uh, religion or in, in with the, the, the context with the spirit that they said these films don't represent anything because what we are dealing with is not representable um, uh, uh, on, on film anyhow. And filmmakers, when I interviewed them, asked them, how, how much do you know about uh, African um, indigenous uh, 
uh, traditions and so on. They said, ah, well, we, we get a lot out of coffee table books and so on. For in a real shrine, there is just a pot, there is so little there, you need something slightly more uh, spectacular. So what happened, of course, was that the representation of indigenous tradition was in a way also very much framed by Hollywood uh, uh, images um, of, of a kind of an Af African uh, Uh, occult, and that matched in a way very much uh, the the position of priests and chiefs, who also said, "Yeah, the films misrepresent mis us, but also we are not uh, we are not representable." Uh, and what well, filmmakers, in a way, acknowledging that and saying, "Yeah, we also need to go for an appealing." Uh, Uh, picture. So this they, is, they, yeah, sort of uh, aesthetics. And exactly. Colorful so they, yeah, exactly, exactly. And they mm. very much created uh, substitutes that were much closer, in a way, to kind of outside imagination of African religion and tradition than what one might find uh, within the context uh, of, of, uh, of priesthood chieftains. So it sounds like heritage is one avenue maybe for further research in your own work. Mm -hmm. What are some other things that you're working on now? Uh, there are in a way quite a number of projects, but uh, I, I uh, certainly will continue doing uh, research also on, on religion and society in Ghana uh, for the future. I intend to engage in a collaborative project with a number of my Uh, Ghanaian colleagues as well, and that will focus uh, on a multi-ethnic, multi-religious neighborhood. Uh, of course, I noted that's also what this book is about, that people are very serious about uh, uh, religion. Uh, so you hear and see signs of the Pentecostals everywhere. You also see um, lots of signs uh, that indicate the presence uh, of Islam. And uh, I'm very much interested uh, to do some uh, research about Muslim-Christian relations uh, within, uh, on the level of, uh, of neighborhoods. And, uh, and on another level, I'm also very much interested to pursue, in a way, an understanding of religion in terms of mediation, to which media are intrinsic, so certain authorized material forms. And I will also engage in more comparative Uh, research that would look at uh, buildings, uh, objects, uh, images, but also food and the body, text as multiple media uh, of uh, religion, both in Africa but uh, also in the West. Whilst working on the book, I also shifted uh, from a position in anthropology to religious studies. This also broadened my horizon a bit, and I'm also very eager to do more work on global entanglements and also help develop um, possibilities for uh, comparison. And this connects to some of the work that you've been coming out with more recently. This is rather recent too, but, yeah. but of course <laughs> you publish so much that there's other recent work as well on icons and iconicity. And, and so it sounds mm -hmm. like some of those things that you were talking about in the last part of your answer is also connecting to that yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I see this book very much as an ethnography of the religious imagination that is in a way unlocked via a focus on, uh, on the image, and also the image indeed as a material form in the interface of uh, religion and, uh, and film or video technology. But this whole question of the 
religious imagination, the image, the idol, the icon, has occupied me uh, very much. I have, of course, also uh, explored the genealogy of these notions, and I'm very much interested in, indeed, the phenomenon of um, iconicity, issues of idolatry, uh, larger themes uh, in the interface of visual culture. So I think of uh, Latour and W.T. Mitchell, but also some German scholars like Belting and Böhm and so on. And that is definitely a field in which I will also invest uh, uh, further. Yeah. Thank you so much for spending the time to talk to us today and to be in Montreal. Thank you very much. I enjoyed uh, the conversation.